last week, um, we were, I just let you know, we're kind of in a little bit of a gap. We finished what we've been doing in Revelation. I wasn't sure what we would do. And as the week went on, I kind of took in different feedback I got from you. I decided I would, we're going to spend a few weeks, probably not too long, maybe three weeks, um, on a little bit of a cultural um, journey, I guess you'd say. We're going to kind of walk back in time. I want to read you something. Uh, this is from New Yorker Magazine, October 19th, 2020. So this is about a week old. It's pretty, pretty fresh news, okay? Listen to this. In 2009, for the first time in history, there were more unmarried women in the United States than married ones. And today, young women in the U.S. aren't just unprecedentedly single, they also appear to be unprecedentedly uninterested in heterosexuality. According to private polling shared with the Intelligencer, which is a New Yorker magazine subset, by Democratic data scientist David Shore, roughly blank percent of American women under 25 identify as LGBT. For women over 60, that figure is less than 5%. Okay, I left it blank on purpose for a second. So David Shore, if you don't know David Shore, David Shore is this brilliant whiz kid data guy. I think he's, he's only like 28 or something. He's really, really young and he kind of hit the scene. If you know Nate Silver, it's kind of famous kind of data pollster. David Shore is a brilliant, extremely left-wing, brilliant data guy. Um, and in his polling, he's determined that blank percent of women in America under 25 identify as LGBTQ L or LGBT, whatever. What's that number? You want to guess what the number is? 25, 30. 30. The answer is 30%, okay? 30%. That's a, that's a lot. Comparing it to women over the age of 60 at 5%, it's a really, really extremely dialogue back and forth number. In the article that I found this in, um, there was a fair bit of comments and, and dialogue back and forth of that what percentage of those women are lesbian, what percentage are bisexual. There tends to be, perhaps in that age demographic, a very high degree of kind of experimentation and fluidity or flexibility, as you would see. But that's a really, really high number. And the article that I read kind of went on to basically look forward at um, what are the implications of this if you have a profound instability in relationships, and what 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 do you, what happens in a culture where the birth rate drops precipitously? Some of you may have seen some of this data. Generally speaking, as Western societies become more affluent, they, they produce less children. The, the, the replacement rate. So generally speaking, any every woman needs to have 2.1 children in order to kind of keep a flat society because you got to make more girls and more boys, and then people die. So it's about 2.1. And when your population drops below that, as it has in some countries, like in Japan, it's less than two. And so their population is shrinking. There's, there's grave implications for this. At a 30%, if 30% of the women are non-heterosexual, which again, they might not, but there's a bisexuality kind of changes the game on that. It produces a really profound, uh, a profoundly different landscape for the future. There's, there's grave implications of this um, and all kinds of questions about how we got there. Now, we stand here, this is, this is the present reality, right? So this is October 19th, 2020. And we could, we could take the time and to kind of project forward and say, you know, what happened? How do, we, how do we get into this place where transgenderism is so on the rise, where the, the family, what happens as the family breaks down? There's all kinds of things that we could peer into the future that we don't actually know because the future is really, really hard to predict. So I'm less interested in that. And I want to instead look backward with you guys and try to, a try to answer the question, how did this come to be? 
What's happening? What has been happening that kind of leads us to the point that we are right now where there's such um, confusion, such radically, radically fast transformation in a culture? Okay? Now, as we do that, it's tempting, and I think many people have kind of looked back and said, well, it's really not that complicated changed. Right? If you go back, and in, and in fact, if you look at the 60s, the, do you guys know, in, can you say, what is the single thing that fueled the sexual revolution? We, there, there's an, there is an answer to this. We know what it is. It is the birth control pill. When the birth control pill kind of hits the scene and you have a complete ability to divorce sex from procreation, like a pretty foolproof, not, maybe not 100%, but pretty darn close, then all, there's massive implications on this. And I say that. I don't say that as someone who's railing against birth, the birth control pill. Just, you know, full confession, there have been times in my married life that I found the birth control pill very convenient, right? Um, Catholic Church has been really strong kind of from the get-go of like, yeah, this is a bad thing. They perhaps saw implications that others didn't. And we could just say, yeah, 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 there was life in the world, and then the birth control pill hits, and the 60s hit, and then everything kind of spins out and spins out into our current reality. It's tempting, but I don't think it would be accurate. That's not really where the story begins. When I, as I've read, I've kind of like in my own mind, I've kind of walked back and said like, where really, where does this, what is the first domino that fell that led us inexorably to this moment? So birth control pill, sexual revolutions on the table. Other thoughts on this? Yeah, Bill? I think the first one was in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is not a bad comment. Okay. So you could look at this and you could say, well, we know when it was. It was the fall. It was in the garden. So God creates a perfect world, and the fall occurs, and everything kind of degrades from that point on. And that's, that's true. That, I mean, that, that's clearly the case, right? Everything. It's, it's not as if, it, sometimes you could think that in America, you know, in the 50s, that was like, you know, leave it to Beaverland, and everything was great. But it was an unjust country, and there was grievous ills, and there's all kinds of terrible things happening in the 50s, and we can go on back. So yes, the fall is a really pretty good answer. And yet... There are still cycles within, even within Western civilization, that are that are broken down. Robin. During World War II, when the the taking the women out of the home and having to kill the workforce, and then the women finding the difference and saying, you know, I kind of like this. I don't want work to be at home. Yes. Okay. So Robin is saying that when World War II hits, and and it was it was a necessity that women would leave the home in order to go into the workforce. Because the men were off fighting wars and the things needed to be done and women stepped into those roles. That was another cultural shift. Things began to change and, and reshape. And, and in some sense, you kind of never go back from that, right? And there are things about that that we could say that there's a loss and a breakdown to the family. But there's also things like, have you guys had the experience yet where you, you look back and maybe you watch an old movie or you see like collections of old advertisements. And you're like, oh my goodness. Like how shockingly sexist was the world in those times. So there's things that we might look back and miss, some of the June Cleaver-esque kind of, you know, framework. But when you look at it kind of with fresh eyes, it's a little bit, have you had this? It's a little bit horrifying, some of the things that we've said and done didn't know. So maybe we go to World War II. Yeah. I don't know when this started, but I think there's a time maybe in the last 20 years when the sense of entitlement started being widespread. Yeah, and so as and we do see, I don't I don't know the broad trends on entitlement, but but when I experience that all the time, I see people that just feel like they deserve something. I'm like, who says you get that? You know, it's crazy. And I, so I I too have watched that thing spread. Although I don't I don't happen to know like if there's some kind of cultural moment where 
entitlement became, you know, more of a, a bigger pool. But, but no, I'm sure this is a real thing. Lily? Yeah, the real like we all love prosperity. I mean, who wants to be poor when they could be rich? Who wants to be sick when they could be healthy? Right? We love to be prospering, but prosperity has a real significant downside. Right? We become we become arrogant. We become more entitled because the more that I have, the more that I want. And we could see, and that, this also kind of comes back roughly World War II. Right? Coming out of World War II, America was absolutely on top of the world. Right? And our, our economic engines were full bore, and, and the level, of the quality of goods and services were just explosively increasing. So I do think we could we can look to that, which takes us back even not just World War II, but to the Industrial Revolution and all the quality of life improvements there for sure. Tommy, I was thinking the um, the dissolution of um, agrarian society in favor of an industrialized form of the weakening weakening of nuclear theory. Yeah, sure. So in case you couldn't hear, the is the indu basically the Industrial Revolution, right? When the agrar agrarian culture breaks down. Um, not breaks down because you still got to eat, but as the industrial, as, as the society moved into more industrial, um, that this had massive implications. And it's funny because we tend to think that, like, again, we have this, there's this American psyche of like the 1950s where, um, you know, men go off to work and, and women stay home and raise children and make everything amazing and beautiful. But in normal human history, husbands don't go off to work. You live at the farm, and you work at the farm. And so the idea that, like, women raise children while men go to work, that is not a, that's not a, a historic idea. Men are around. The kids are around. They're on the farm. They're doing these things. And so that we have a very, we kind of have a myopic history that we tend to, like, idealize. Show. Bob? Developing mindsets, especially in academia, about there is no God. Okay, so you're looking back to see chasing, chasing through in, in the academic environments. And so what are you going to go to, early 1800s? I mean, late 1800s? Is that where you're more you're thinking kind of the kind of almost post enlightenment thinking and the and the division here? Okay, so we're we're getting closer and closer. Okay, one more and then I'm gonna give some other thoughts. I think And we, we talked a little bit about social media last week. If you, if you haven't, I really would recommend you go on Netflix and watch, what's it called? The Social Dilemma? Is that right? Watch. Have you have seen it, Kim? What did you think? Highly recommend. It's just horrifying, isn't it? I mean, it's I mean, I've seen, yeah. just outrageous. It's just really, really would recommend you watch it. And so there's, and I like the way you phrase it. It's an excel, it didn't create something. It accelerated something at a, at a really, really sharp level. Okay. So here's the thing. Suzanne, you want, did I lie? One more. Okay. Um. Henry Ford changed the world, right? So the divorce of doing a job for a paycheck, where once upon a time work um, universally was a coherent package, right? There's this whole thing that we're doing, and I'm part of it. When it, when it, when it turned into, yeah, but I'll pay you double if you'll just sit there and screw a bolt on a, on a, screw a lug nut on a bolt. I'll give you double what those guys are paying you next door. And we divorced work for meaning. Now, many people have very, very meaningful work, very, very much meaningful work. But when work really became purely economic instead of satisfaction of the whole person, there's implications for that. But, but also just the ability to say, hey, I don't have a job. I want a paycheck. Like, I think that's, that's... Oh, do you mean like a welfare kind of a situation? Exactly. I mean, like... Yes. Those. Yes.
Okay, great. And now, and now here's an interesting thing is when did that happen? Okay, so here's, here's what has happened to me is I've gone, kind of gone through this. And as I had once upon a time this sense of like, oh, it was the 60s that everything broke, which means the 50s was when it was good. Well, then I start to read books from the 50s. And if you read, if you read thoughtful cultural commentators in the 50s, they were saying, man, it's really, really bad. Like, it's bad. This is C.S. Lewis. If you've never read The Abolition of Man, it is, it is absolutely, it is so brilliant, so insightful. And he kind of gets, he's, he's observing that in his culture, so Abolition of Man was written actually in 1944, okay? So this is pretty early in the game, right coming out of World War II. He talked about this phenomenon. He, the book, the, the first essay in the book is a critique of an English high school textbook. Okay, it's a little bit strange. He calls it the Green Book. And he basically, he, he uh, stay with me. This is going to be pertinent in a second. But he basically makes this observation. If you see a waterfall and you remark that the waterfall is beautiful, are you saying something about yourself, namely that you find it beautiful, or are you saying that the waterfall itself is, in fact, beautiful? Which is it? You look at a waterfall and you say, that waterfall is beautiful. So are we learning something about you and what you find lovely, or are we learning something that is inherent to the waterfall? Okay, you would say both. Some would say second. This book, the textbook that he's critiquing, would say it's all about you. It's, pure, it's a pure subjective experience. And Lewis argues, no, 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 no. Things are what they actually are. Listen, here's, here's what he says about this. He says, until quite modern times... All teachers and even all men believed the universe to be such that certain emotional reactions on our part could either be congruous or incongruous to it. They believed, in fact, that objects did not merely receive but could merit our approval or disapproval, our reverence or our contempt. What he's saying there, and this may be a little bit complex, what he's saying is that the, the statement that beauty is in the eye of the beholder isn't true. Beauty is objective. The things, some things are in fact lovely. Now you may or may not recognize it, but there's an inherent reality to things. That you, you, may, you may see it, you may not see it, but it is what it is. Okay? This is in 1944 that the fundamental objective reality had begun to peel away from people's consciousness. And he was trying to speak over that and say, no, 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 no. things are what they are. I know you think it's all in your head, it's all beauty's all in the eye of the beholder, but no, it's not. Things are what they are. The waterfall, you don't just think it's beautiful, it is beautiful. And you may or may not have the capacity to recognize what fundamentally is, okay? <laughs> and so it was at least by 1944 that this thing had begun to peel apart. And then I read T.S. Eliot. Listen to this. T.S. Eliot was an Anglican, he is known postlands. Uh, he was an Anglican poet, brilliant thinker. And he said this in 1931. Okay, this was 90 years ago. This is Eliot. He says, the world is trying the experiment of attempting to form a civilized but non-Christian mentality. 1931. The experiment will fail. But we must be very patient in awaiting its collapse. Meanwhile, redeeming the time so that the faith may be preserved alive through the dark ages before us to renew and rebuild civilization and save the world from suicide. 
That's stunning. In 1931, the world is attempting the experiment of forming a, non, a civilized but non-Christian mentality. The experiment will fail. But we, the church, must be very patient, awaiting its collapse. Right? So when the whole thing dissolves, we can step forward and renew and rebuild civilization and see if it wasn't suicide. 1931. So it wasn't in the 50s, and it wasn't in the 40s, and it wasn't in the 30s. And then you got this, Rudyard Kipling. You guys, like, if you're fans of Rudyard Kipling's poetry, he wrote The Gods of the Copybook Headings in 19... Go home and Google this. Seriously, when you get home, The Gods of the Copybook Headings. What he does in this poem... Do you, you know what a copybook heading means? Copybook headings. So a copybook, think of like an old primer, like... Where there's like, the kids have to write down, you know, chase their letters and do their arithmetic and multiplication tables. And the tops of these things, the headings of the copybooks, would be basically proverbs, these truisms. Some of them might be actual biblical proverbs. Others might be, you know, aphorisms about, the, you know, what, what the world is actually like. And he pits the gods of the copybook headings, which is this dependable, reliable truth against the gods of the marketplace, which he's basically using for social progress. All these wise ones that will step forward and make these claims. And he basically, he's creating this contest between the gods of the copybook headings and the gods of the marketplace. I'll give you just a couple of samples from it, a couple stanzas. He says, as I pass through my incarnations in every age and race, I make my proper prostrations to the gods of the marketplace. Peering through reverent fingers... I watch them flourish and fall. And the gods of the copybook headings, I notice outlast them all. So there's always some new brilliant idea, some new thought about how life should be. And they come and they go and everybody follows them. And he, as the poem goes on, he, he kind of walks through all these different examples of this. And then I'll give you the very end of it. He says, then the gods of the market tumbled and their smooth-tongued wizards withdrew. And the hearts of the meanest were humbled and began to believe it was true that all is not gold that glitters and two and two make four. And the gods of the copybook headings limped up to explain it once more. As it will be in the future, it was at the birth of man. There are only four things that are certain since social progress began. That the dog returns to his vomit and the sow returns to her mire. And the burnt fool's bandaged finger goes wobbling back to the fire. And here's the conclusion. And that after all this is accomplished, and the brave new world begins, when all men are paid for existing, and no man must pay for his sins, as surely as water will wet us, as surely as fire will burn, the gods of the copybook headings with terror and slaughter return. And so by 1919, things were already going off the rails. So you see, so we're in this game. I was like, where, where, so you guys, when were the good old days? <laughs> Truly. When was it that things were not beginning to spin out of control? If that's not enough, here's, here's my last stop on our little history. You guys know G.K. Chesterton? Yeah. You know who he is? Who has ever read anything about G.K. Chesterton? Who knows him? Chesterton is one of the most brilliant Catholic Ah, uh, what is he writing? He's not a theologian. He's probably his most famous book, Apologist. That's not, that's not bad. So he lived in the early 1900s. He's brilliant. His, probably his most famous books are Heretics and Orthodoxy. 
which if you read them, he's, in, he's very, very funny, but he's also very, very smart. And so it takes a little bit of effort to kind of get through his stuff. He wrote um, a series of, um, he's the inventor of the, of the mystery novel. If you've ever heard of Father Brown, like Agatha Christie and all these things, they are all descendants of Father Brown. He, he created this, this character, Father Brown. It's this Catholic priest who solves kind of a Columbo-esque kind of character. But he is, he is literally, like, he is the first mystery novel. But he wrote, he, this is what he says. This is in Orthodoxy. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of quotes from Chesterton. Again, this is early, early, early. This is the very, like, dawn of the century. He says, what we suffer from today, 1908, is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition, and modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of man that man does assert is exactly the part he not, ought not assert himself. And the part that he doubts is exactly the part he ought not doubt, divine reason. We are on a road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. We're, we are kissing that today. Here's what he said. Listen to this. This is, I think, so insightful. He says, uh, this is not from, um, that, was, that was from Orthodoxy. This is from a radio essay he did. The Declaration of Independence, he's British, but he's talking about the, the U.S. The Declaration of Independence, once the charter of democracy, begins self-evident to the modern man that men are created equal. It's not self-evident that men are created, or even that men are men. We shall soon be in a world in which a man may be howled down for saying that two and two make four. In which furious party cries will be raised against anybody who says that cows have horns. In which people will persecute the heresy of calling a triangle a three-sided figure. And hang a man for a maddening mob with the news that grass is green. When was that? That quote, that was actually in the 20s, 1920s. It was kind of later in Chesterton's remarks. Okay, and by the way, let me be clear, because one thing that could be easily misunderstood, when he says it's not clear that men are men, he did not mean in distinction from women. Okay, we might hear a transgenderism in that. He was, he was talking about men in distinction from monkeys. He's talking about evolution, not transgenderism. So that's, he wasn't quite so prescient as that, but pretty darn close, you guys, okay? Because we are literally, literally today at the point where there are tens of millions of people in America and probably a handful in this room who do not know that maleness is an essential attribute, not an ascribed attribute. That femaleness is fundamental, not, um, not administered. It is what it is. And there are literally tens of millions of people who, who do not know this. And the younger you are, the more that you're likely to like hiccup as I say that. And the older you are, the more that you're like, well, no kidding, genius, right? Right? Like, why are we having this conversation? But just watch the numbers go down. Here's this. Here's Abraham Lincoln. We'll go back. Here's, my, here's our final stop in our little time travel. Abraham Lincoln asked this question. How many legs does a dog have if you call his tail a leg? <laughs> the answer? Four. Saying that a tail is a leg doesn't make it a leg. <laughs> a great quote. How many tails, how many legs does a dog have if you call his tail a leg? 
Okay, so again, the question is, when were the good old days? When, and I really mean this. When did reason begin to die? You can go back to the fall. Okay, Bill's going to the fall. You guys all on team Bill, or, you, or is there any other time that you would say, yeah, but there was this? Yeah, Lily? So we, we can go back, if we're not quite in the garden, well, those, those kids grew up in the garden, right? So we're, we're going to say there's a, there's a very strong early, early argument. How about if we limit, yeah, go ahead, bro. I was going to say Darwin, because Darwin, if you supplant the author of truth, then you are now the arbiter of truth. This notion, and this, is, this by the way, is what lies behind all of it. If you're, you're saying at Darwin that Darwin may have been kind of an early domino in this process of who gets to be the arbiter of truth. Okay. We're gonna, I'm gonna, I'll give you my answer in a second. Let's get a few more thoughts here, and then we'll pound it out. Yes. He was predating Darwin. challenging the word of God, and that goes all the way back to, you know, even when Jesus was tempted into the, into the desert, what Satan was using, did he really say? Yeah. Did, did he really? Yeah. So it's always been the questioning of the objective truth of God's word, and I don't know, I don't know when that started, but yes. anytime something was written down, we seem to challenge it. Yes. That's, that's, that's excellent. And, and we are, um, we, we do know, and I'm going to tell you in about 10 minutes. So, yeah, Bill? Oh, I'm sorry, then Terry. I don't, you, maybe you can date this for me. When Pelagian... Pelagian country, that's going to be early, early. When Which Pelagian? Like 350, 400? Fourth century. Fourth century, so yeah, 300s, is that right? So that's super, super early. And I would say he, in some sense, well, that's early, early in the um, Western civilization, so that's not a bad answer. Terry? Anytime you take Christ out of it, anytime you remove God from the picture... Things are going to go. Yeah. And, and, and that's true, right? Anytime you take God out of the picture, it's going to get to go. And what, what you got with the beauty of all of your answers are is you're realizing this wasn't like 20 years ago. This wasn't 100 years ago. This wasn't 200 years ago. The roots of this are deep. We are well into uh, what, what Chesterton would call a decadence. Now, we, we almost exclusive. If I say the word decadent, Curious, real, real quick, it's just word association. What do you think of when I say decadent? Right? Isn't it exactly? I knew that's what you were going to say. Like, decadent is like luxurious chocolate deliciousness, okay? But that's not what it actually means. Do you know what it really means before, before the dessert people got a hold of it? <laughs> it means decline. It means a culture in decline. Decadence means that, like, things are spiraling down and spiraling down. And we are unmistakably in this present moment in a decadent culture. We are on the decline, okay? Life expectancies may be going up, you know, painkillers are improving. That's, that's lovely. Internet's getting faster. But in terms of the ability to reason, like, we're down. But the thing is, you guys, we've been going down for a long, long, long time. Robin? 
yes. You said Tower of Babel and their motive to be God? Promoting the self as God, yeah. So again, we can get all of the roots of all of our wickedness really are going to be, we can, we Genesis, not just the first three chapters, but the first 11, the whole book, like we, we, all these things, we can, we, can, we can point to all of these great moments. In terms of Western civilization, we can trace back the history of philosophy to a very specific point and a very specific person whose name was William of Ockham. Have you ever heard of Ockham's razor? That's our guy, okay? So William of Ockham is the guy that most historians, most uh, his, uh, historians of philosophy would trace this back to. We're talking like early 1300s. That in the 1300s, William of Ockham, who was a believer, he was a Franciscan something, I don't know what you call him, monk, priest, something. Um, he wanted to get God off the hook. Okay, so here's the question. I, I love you guys to think about this. If God were to declare something good was evil, would it become evil? If God were to declare that something evil is good, would it become good? How, how would you answer that question? If God were to declare something good to be evil, would it become evil? If God were to declare something evil is good, would it become good? Okay, so you're, are you on team yes? Okay, team yes. Okay, who's on, who's on team yes? Okay, DFP, I heard you say it out loud. Tell us why you're on team yes. Uh, Peter's vision before Cornelius calls him, where the sheets drop down and God says, take and eat. And Peter says, no, they're unclean. I'm not going to do it. And God says, you don't have the right to call anything unclean that I call clean. Okay, all right. So now, now I would perhaps make a distinction between Clean and evil, but but I but I hear you were saying okay so good so we got team yes who's on team no okay can there be another team <laughs> okay uh, there might be so hang on let's hear team let's hear I want to hear Stuart defend team no and then Kim you can throw some sand in the gears it'd be great. So we got team no. Um, okay, so I was yes. thinking what he was thinking and saying. I was going to say, if God says something is that that is evil is good, then can it become good and vice versa? I would say if he says it is good, then it is. It already is. Okay. So it. Okay. It already is. Okay. If is there something that God has said this is evil, can He change it by by saying this is now a good thing? Okay, so, so, this is good. This is exactly what I want. I want you guys to fight with each other. Okay, so Bill. <laughs> I, I start off by saying not only God is good, and, uh, but I think it's man trying to play God and right. trying to yeah. trap God. Uh, God doesn't change. Okay, so God doesn't change. Okay, all right, that's good. All right, we're going to get a few more. Richard. Uh, God is eternal. So God, truth is eternal. God is truth. Truth is eternal. 
truth. So you can't, God can't change truth because truth is God and God is eternal. So you'd be on team no, and you're also saying it's team no and he wouldn't try, basically, okay? Okay, all right, that's good. All right, that's good. Joel? So what was your question again? Okay, yeah. So if, if God were to take something evil and say it is good, would it become good? And if he were to take something good and say it is evil, would it become So could, could God wake up tomorrow? He's not asleep. But tomorrow could God say, I hereby decree, decree that rape is good. And it would become good because he said so. So that's the question. So that, that's the question. The question, you know, team yes. And the only reason I pitched for a second was because God is the first and final authority. He didn't say God's going to do this if there was a confusion about it. So God's first and final authority. The question isn't not would he do this, it's if he did. So God, God's not going to change his mind on things. Would you question God if he did do it? Okay. So you're saying team yes, but he would never do it. Right, your question was, because your question was, if he did. Uh-huh. So he's not going to say. Right. Yep, yep, yep. It's now good. He's not going to do that. But if he did, would I question him? Because there are things that are not as obviously self-evident black and white as that that God could say. Okay. God does say that we question all the time in his word. Well, I'm not sure about that. Right. Because he's the court of final authority. Whatever he says is. Essentially what you're saying. Okay, okay, I'm with you. Okay, that's good. Uh, Brett Jones. Yeah, I would, I would say team no because um, there are things that are not possible for God to do, not because he doesn't have the power, but because, but because they don't make any sense. So something, that's, something that is uh, eternally good cannot just become eternally evil just by death. Okay, and and you guys are you guys are doing a great job of looking at multiple sides of this, and it is it's a it's what we call a thought experiment, and thought experiments are strange. Like imagine a world, Michael, and then where's it, Jennifer? Yeah, Michael. I'm, I'm just repeating for a team that I basically I, I think I haven't heard anybody say it's not in his character to do so. It's like the scripture that says that God can't lie; it's not in his character to lie. I think it's not it's not in his character to change something. If he had created it originally as good or evil, all the time if he had created. <laughs> Okay, so this is, okay, what I really appreciate, what Michael just said, this is something really worth underlining here, is if God created it as good, right, if it, it is good, if it's inherently good, does his statement alter, would, would a statement alter that? And Michael's saying, no, it's, it's not good because he said it was good, it's good because he made it good, right? Okay, that's a really important thought. And then Jennifer? Where I struggle, because I don't know what team I'm on. Okay. <laughs> and, Okay, good. And I'll just say briefly to that that, that there's there are different um, there are different verbs, right? So so it is there are different 
there are different sorts of killing. There are different circumstances. So in the same way that we might, you might be comfortable saying, you shall not, you know, you shall not murder an innocent person and feel differently about, you shall not put a sick dog to sleep, right? They're both acts of killing, but they're very, they're very different things. And so there is a, there's a little bit of stretchiness on that. Furman? You know, I think you're here and I'm here. We're all here because God prepared us and justified us. We were, we were running away against God and he declared that he declared that. So here we have, and here it gets a little bit strange, is God, the, how does God create things? He speaks them into existence is what he does, right? And so in, in the same way that he, he speaks light into existence, he doesn't, he's not like, in a workshop like combining photons or something, he's, he speaks, he says, let there be light, and there is, and creation itself is of. For us to distinguish between what God has created and what God has said over what he's created, if the act of creation itself is a, essentially a verbal act for him. And then he speaks justification over us. Did, am I evil, and yet he has declared me good. So that gets, that gets the kind of muddies the waters a little bit. That's really complicated. Okay, one or two more, and then we got to stop. And let, do you guys want to like save this over to next week? We'll leave you all in suspense. Maybe that's what we'll do. We'll, that'll be fine. You got to come back, Kat. Okay, so when God created yep. Adam, he said it's good. And mm -hmm. Eve gets included in that, right? She's good. But then do they become evil when they eat the apple, basically? Yeah, great question. So when, when Adam and Eve, when they fall, is the fall an example of something changing state from good to evil, right? And, and, it, and it is, although it's not because he's declared that you are now, you're now bad, but because they did something that actually broke them. In the same way that I could take, I don't know, you could take a car and you could crash it. You could take something, you can bend and destroy and distort what a thing essentially is. So a thing's nature can change um, by when forces are acting upon it. Okay. All right, Tommy, and then I'm going to tell you Occam's answer. Um, I, I think it ultimately, ultimately comes down to um, the <coughs> Okay, and, it, and, and that, that exact argument can kind of cut both ways. Here's what here, William of Ockham believed that if God is really God, is free and sovereign and could do whatever he wants, then team yes is right. That God, that God can decree that, you know, anything. Rape is good and kindness is bad. He can do whatever. Nominalism, which is a, the, the view that he espoused, called nominal, you hear like name, to name something. Nominalism is the claim that the meaning of objects and actions in the material world are assigned. They are not inherent, they are assigned. So we declare that this is a phone as an act of assignment. It's not essentially inherently a phone. And as they are, if they are, and here's the, here's the, the, the trick of this that you, maybe some of you saw coming or didn't see coming. If we grant that God can reassign the meaning and the value and the worth of a thing, that it's not inherent, but it's assigned. If God can do it, it's going to be about 30 seconds until we decide that we can do it too. 
And now we move from inherent truth and inherent value, inherent reality, to assigned value, assigned reality, assigned truth. And from that point on, from the 13, about 1350 on through the ages, we have had historical event after historical event after historical event that has widened that gap to the point that we are now such thoroughgoing nominalists that we literally have 15-year-old girls deciding that, in fact, they are 15-year-old boys. And we just start shoving testosterone at them because have at it. Because you determine you. No one will. Those that have assigned you the gender of girl had no, no right to assign to you girlness. And so if you choose to assign to yourself boyness, who's to say that their assignment was superior to? Nothing is fundamental to its own real nature. So far so good? How many legs does a dog have? There you go. How many legs? Well, it depends. Do we call the tail a leg? <laughs> this is where we are. This is, we, are, we are 700 years into the experiment of nominalism. And the, 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 William was a believer, okay? He wasn't trying to ruin everything, right? And we are, for the reasons that we've espoused in this room, we're deeply sympathetic to the idea that God can do what he wants to do. He's God. He's the final arbiter of all things. All these things. This is what, what Occam thought. But the, the, the eventual reality, if things aren't inherent and are merely assigned, even assigned by God, then they are reassignable by others. And you do that long enough. You do that for about seven centuries, and you get to where we are right now. Lord knows, seriously, what does it look like a hundred years hence? Right now, right now, today, it would be absurd to everyone if I were to tell you that I am an African American. Okay? But that's only because you haven't heard a thousand times that you can assume a racial identity. Okay? It is exactly, precisely, 100% as absurd for me to claim that I am female as it is to claim that I am seven years old, that I am African American, that I am six foot eight. All equal insanity. But one of those makes millions of people be like, well, hold on. Not, and not only hold on, it makes millions of people say, how dare you, you hateful Monster, how dare you refuse to allow someone to assign to themselves a new set of meaning? You guys, it's all equally irrational, all equally insane, but it doesn't seem that way. We are such thoroughgoing nominalists, and we're not done, right? It's not over. This journey that we're on, this divorce of rationality, it's not yet over. Okay, so what we're going to do, we've got to stop and go to church. Next week... We're going to kind of go do this specific history. We're going to chase it back. We're going to go from 1300s, and we're going to walk through the centuries and see what were the moments that we, started to, that we began to peel apart truth from perception. How do, we, how do we separate them? Because if we understand it, you'll be, a little bit, you'll be in a little bit superior position to recognize the absurdity that, that surrounds you. Okay? And that, I think, should be fun. So that's all. So goodbye.